Back when I was in the military, there was a bit of a saying. If you don't want to get stuck doing work, just walk around carrying a clipboard. No one asks the guy who's carrying a clipboard to do anything. And you know what? It was true. If someone decided that they didn't really want to get assigned a task, you might find them wandering the halls with a clipboard or some other kind of vague busy work. They might have some tools in their hand or a red vest on. And the same goes for getting into places. If you've got two hands full of packages, or even better, let's say something like pizza, do you know how many people are just going to hold the doors open for you? See how far you can get before anyone ever really questions what you're doing. Some people might call these low-level cons, a bit of misbehavior, or something in between. But think about how much damage could really be done by someone if they did this with a little bit of malicious intent. This episode, we're going to talk some fun and not-so-fun examples of that type of behavior. I'm John Cordes, and today, I'm inviting you to join me while I explain what the shell social engineering is, and why it can be so dangerous. Hey, real quick, before we start, do you want some free merch? Well, I'm doing a bit of a giveaway if you do. There's two prize pools. The first winner gets a shirt of their choice, one of each sticker, and a $25 Amazon gift card. The second gets a shirt, one sticker, and a show patch. The instructions are up on my Instagram and in the Discord channel for the group. All you need to do is tag a show in a post with your favorite episode, leave a review if your platform supports it, and head over to the show Discord channel and let us know in the giveaways chat. It's really easy. Anyways, that's it for self-promotion. Let's get back to the topic. What is social engineering? Okay, so technically speaking, social engineering is treated as the use of deception to manipulate individuals into divulging confidential or personal information that may be used for fraudulent purposes. It does go a bit beyond that, though, because sometimes it might also be to get access to something physically as well. It's not always about taking information. The kicker to all that is that if a social engineer scam goes right, the target won't even know that they were had. There's a few big players in information security when it comes to types of social engineering, so let's take a quick second to break those down. We've got the one you all know and love, phishing. Likely the most common attack out there. Definitely the most annoying. Phishing is just emails aimed at getting you to open them, maybe click a link or download a file and obtain information or deliver a payload. Some phishing emails will be aimed at getting credentials, asking you to change your password, and presenting you a fake page where you need to enter your current password first. Remember last episode when we talked about the Podesta hack? Basically that. Other phishing emails might be aimed at getting your banking information in the service of a foreign prince, promising you much of his own wealth in exchange for just a little bit of help. A tale as old as the internet. Hell, there's even vishing with a V, which takes that up a notch and has the attackers calling you, maybe pretending to be IT support to get you to let them remote into your machine. It's all aimed about engineering you, the user, with those basic primal emotions. Maybe it's fear. You've gotten an email that says you're about to get into legal trouble without thinking you click it out of anxiety. It could be empathy. This past year, phishing emails targeting people to donate to Ukraine have been widespread. It could even be lust promising single people in your area. As next week's guest will tell you, it's all about engaging that particular part of a brain and not getting you to think too deeply into it. They don't want you questioning things. Vishing does have a little bit of crossover into another area as well. It's called pretexting. Basically, you're creating a scenario to try and make the person trust you just a little bit more. 
that's something that you see a bit more in those vishing attacks, and as I mentioned, maybe they're trying to scam you into thinking there's a problem with your machine, or maybe they're pretending to be the IRS. Something like this happened to a family member of mine, once upon a time. They called me because they were called by someone allegedly from Microsoft to say that there was a problem with their laptop. Luckily, she hung up on them and called me, because we chatted and I told her that no one from Microsoft would ever call her to tell her that she's got a virus. That's just not a thing, it's a pretext to get someone who doesn't know a lot about computers to give in to their wants and their demands. It's a pretext to get you to help them. I'll go over two more real quick and then we'll get into some fun stories. The first is tailgating. Simply put, it's when someone might piggyback off you going into an area to sneak in. It might literally just be them sneaking in behind you being very quiet. It could also incorporate pretexting with maybe some of those boxes in their arms to get you to hold the door. All these different kinds of social engineering work in tandem to create successful attacks. The very last one that I'll talk to you a little bit about is quid pro quo. That's the exchange of something for the information. A lot of times you might see it as something like a bribe for information, but it could also be a bit nefarious too. Maybe it delves a little bit more into blackmail, and in exchange for information, an attacker won't do something detrimental to you. This is why background checks for security clearances are as strict and regulated as they are. They want to make sure that you are not susceptible to these kind of attacks. Essentially, if you can picture a con man doing it, or maybe even a spy doing it, it's a bit of social engineering. So let's talk about some stories. How many of you have heard of Barbara Corcoran? Honestly, the name didn't really ring to me until I found out that she was on the show Shark Tank. Where millionaires hear pitch ideas and either decide to inject their help and funds into the project in exchange for a little bit of equity, or reject an idea altogether. But to some, these weren't really sharks, they were whales. Big piles of money that they might be able to take advantage of. The story went that Corcoran's bookkeeper received an invoice from someone that, for all intents and purposes, appeared to be Corcoran's assistant. The email was a foreword of an invoice that read, Dear customer, please see the attached invoice. Wire transfers may be directed to FFH Concept GmbH. I've got a screenshot of a full email in the episode transcript on my website, whattheshellpod.com. But I'm looking at this and it looks legit. The only thing I can really spot that might be off about this is the address to the bank. For GLC Geimenschaft's bank, on the invoice number, the street is slightly off from what I could find online. That might not even be a big thing either, as this is a couple years old and the bank could have moved. The only other clue was in the grammar, where invoice was unnecessarily capitalized a few times. But that also could have been chalked up to a translation issue. This is for a German bank after all. So once they receive this email, what does Corcoran's bookkeeper do? They keep talking back and forth, discussing that this was for a real estate renovation, since Corcoran does a lot of real estate work. So they went ahead and processed it, and away went $400,000. The only reason they noticed it is because in a separate email chain, the bookkeeper reached out to the assistant with a follow-up item, sending it that time to the actual email address of the real assistant, and not the one that had been faked and that they had been talking to the whole time. The full scam went like this. An attacker from China posed as an assistant, sent the message, waited for the funds to get transferred, and then, if all went well, would move them from a German bank to their own in China. Unfortunately for them, they found this error within 72 hours. 
it was very lucky, and the German bank was able to prevent the money from leaving the account and get it back to Corcoran. So, this time at least, we've got a happy ending. The next story I've got for you is a bit of a light-hearted story at first. It's definitely taking pretexting up a notch and going full charisma with it. Seriously, this guy is like a full-on bard. The story comes from a podcast that I listen to called the Anma Podcast. That's A-N-M-A. The hosts, Gus and Jeff, talk about how someone pretexted their way into a job. They didn't use those words, but I'm adding a little bit of contextual flavor here. I'm actually going to let you listen to them discuss it, because I think it's kind of funny and it's crazy to me at the same time. There was a, when I started in February 98, the call center was still really small. A typical shift might be three or four people. By the time Jeff came on, uh, there had been a renovation and expansion. Mm -hmm. I don't know specifically what a a shift was when you started. It was probably like 20 people? Yeah. No, it was like 12. It was 12? About 12 people. And uh, the company had about 60 when when I got hired. Uh, and then, you know... They've got like 1,500 now, by the way. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. Yeah. They're, a, they're a massive company it, now. it remains to be seen. Jury's still out on whether Gus and I made the right decision when we rolled the dice <laughs> no, and no. left the company. You might have blown it by starting Rooster Teeth. He's, he's not joking. I'm not joking. Yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was like a, a low double-digit employee over there, you know? Yeah. You know, like as far as like hire date. Uh, and then it's, it's undergone crazy expansion. But by the time you know jeff was also we were both managers there was a, the shifts had grown quite a bit there was yeah. a, and there's a lot of turnover in that business you know we hire a lot of at the time we hired a lot of college students show up work for a while quit no big deal right that's circle of life we tried yeah. to make the job as easy as possible so that even if someone had no technology they could come in and very quickly get up to speed and start taking calls but uh because of this rapid turnover uh sometimes there was poor communication on the management side sometimes yeah. the employees would show up for their first day be like oh well, I don't have your paperwork. I don't know. Well, let's get you started in the system. And you get them going. Oh One day, this dude showed up. I <laughs> <laughs> was like, hey, I'm here for training. Neither of us was working on this day. It was uh, right. another manager was working. It was like, oh, uh, well, I don't have any of your hire date or your paperwork. It's like, well, let's just get you started in training and everything. Started the training, started him taking calls. And it wasn't until payroll was get- the next payroll was getting run that I think it was Bernie. Yeah. Who was like running the payroll. It's like, hey, who is this guy? He's not in the system. We can't pay him because we don't have any of his information. So then they had to retroactively put it in, and then later uh, he admitted that, yeah, he, he just showed up and said he'd been hired and said he was here for day one of training, and Brian no was it. the manager, didn't catch it, and was uh, and so we just, he hired himself. Yeah. And uh, he promoted himself to level two. Yeah. Same, he, same way. He was, he was a good employee. He also. He also, here comes, here comes here, the crazy here twist. Here comes the crazy twist. He also played Donut in Red vs. Blue. What? Dan Godwin. That's how we met Dan. That's how we met Dan Godwin. Was he hired himself at the call center. And we're yeah. like, oh, that guy, that guy's a go-getter. That guy, <laughs> that guy. <laughs> this is insane. Okay, so you've got this guy that just shows up to a company, says he got hired, and is here for training, and the company just takes it at face value. They put him into it, and bam, he's an employee. He even goes so far as to do it again for a promotion down the line. I love this story. Until I start thinking about what could have been. So, this is a call center, right? Outsource tech support for people and companies. Here's a scenario that's playing in my head if it went down the wrong path. That guy Dan shows up and says he was hired. He gets trained, he gets access to the company network, and he gets access to the data of all the companies that they're doing business with. Maybe he starts calling up some of the contacts at the other companies. As, you know, a completely legitimate tech support call. 
This isn't a scam. The call is coming from the right call center from a company that they hired and that they expect. The call center has just been infiltrated. Then, Dan serves up a payload to some unsuspecting employee, and boom, you're starting to expand access outward. Maybe he gets other companies, too, and directs that stuff back to his own command and control environment. It might sound far-fetched, but this has happened before, specifically with a tech support company in India. When vendors of services like this get compromised, all of their customers are immediately on the hook for potentially losing data. At the very least, he could make off with sensitive data, and at most, he can spread his infection out to other networks and keep moving. Then, when he's ready to leave, or he's found out, or they start asking more questions about him, he could just go. Turns out Dan was a fake name this whole time, since no one ever really confirmed it, and none of his information was real. For clarity, that last part is made up for that little what-if, but it could have happened. Now, in this case, I'll say it all worked fine and well. They went on to befriend him and work together with him for years to come. You've probably heard of or seen their show, Red vs. Blue. And this happened a while back, so I'm guessing that the call center has probably implemented better controls by now. But still, when I heard this story on their podcast, I knew I had to include it in this episode, because it's funny, with just the right bit of dangerous if you think about it. I've included a link to the whole episode in the show description if you're interested in giving the whole thing a listen, but you don't have to, this was only a small part of it. Okay, on to the next one. And this one's going to hit people where it hurts. In their wallets. Well, maybe not the traditional wallet, but we're going to talk Ethereum Classic. Just so you get what I mean. In 2017, the resource that they used for housing their coins, Ethereum Classic Wallet, was targeted for a major hack. It should be noted that Ethereum Classic is a different cryptocurrency technically from a widely popular Ethereum. And as of now, Ethereum Classic is orders of magnitude less valuable than the current Ethereum. But this still does hit hard. The attacker in this case had a pretty elaborate plan. Step one, impersonate the owner of a domain and contact the domain registry. He did this over the phone, calling the registry and impersonating them to gain access to the site itself. From here, an attacker would be able to redirect traffic to their own site, potentially a malicious version aimed at doing some level of theft or harm. So think about it, I request to go to the website either through the web or through the application, and then once it starts translating, maybe it doesn't route to the right application server, maybe it routes to mine, and now it's doing what I want it to do. In the transcript on the site, I've got the actual bit of code that was added on top of what people would typically expect in the Ethereum Classic wallet. But essentially what it would do is send an encrypted private key for the user's wallet and the password to the malicious host. It does this by adding in a little bit of a function called wallet.senddata. It was pretty obvious and people found it rather quickly. Because of this hijacking, Anytime someone tried to access their wallet at all, or did anything to their account in the time frame in which ownership wasn't guaranteed, they were compromised. After all, whenever you did that, the request went out and information was sent, which meant that your information was being sent. It prompted the actual owners to even post on Reddit in a thread about the situation. I found the quote and they said, We need a clarification here. When we say do not use, we mean do not access your wallet at all. Don't even check your balance. If you have not accessed your wallet via the classic eForwallet.com website during the time frame in which the hack occurred, then you are secure and will be able to return to normal business with your funds still there as soon as the website is back under control. 
but if you access your wallet, then you will be exposed. You have to interact with your wallet during the time frame in order to be vulnerable. So just have patience and do nothing until this is resolved and you will be fine. And at the time, people lost thousands of dollars in funds that would never come back to them. There's a lot of complaints about it on the website and a lot of complaints about it in some of the Reddit posts that are still up to this day if you go searching for them. Ethereum Classic in 2017 was hitting around $3 a token. Not much, but when you consider that it would eventually have an all-time high of $134, that's a large increase on your investment if you're patient. That kind of impersonation attack isn't uncommon either. I want to talk to you for one more that I was actually following back in May. It involved compromising the entire module for Python. A small bit of pretext here, Python as we know is a coding language, but sometimes you want to do something a little bit specific, and making the functionality to do it on your own is a bit intense. That's why there are modules and libraries that people create to do this for you. You can plug and play whatever modules you need to use to have access to the functions in their code. For example, do I want to reach out to my own AWS instance? I might import a Bodo Free module, where if I choose some of the functions, I can connect to the different parts of my service. I could import something called pprint, which stands for pretty print. That makes my output a little bit more legible when I'm working with massive outputs. Most of the time, if you can think of it, it's there. But I digress. One of these modules is called CTX. It's rather popular among developers, and what one person noticed was that it hadn't been updated in quite a while. On a hunch, a hacker that goes by the name Sock Puppets or Socket Puppets, depending on where he's posting, checked the email of the owner of that module. The owner at that point had an email address of figleaf at figleaf.com. The catch is that figleaf.com was no longer valid, so the hacker took that information and actually bought the domain, and then set up a new email that was the same as that other one. So he set up figleaf at figleaf.com, but this time he owned it. Then he went to that site where the code repository for CTX was held. He clicked forgot password, and then he'd got sent the password reset, and boom, access. From there, he changed the module up just a little bit so that when it was used, it would grab AWS passwords and keys and send it to his own site. He masqueraded this as an attempt to update the module, and it would appear legitimate because he was actually updating the base module itself, not creating a knockoff like we often see. And I debated on including this one, because it's more passive social engineering, but he did essentially create a pretext where he was the owner of this module and tricked users into updating to his malicious version. And this story has a weird ending. The malicious version was removed pretty quickly, and in fact Sock Puppets went to his own blog on Medium.com, as well as Reddit, to own up to this. He claimed that this was all in the name of security research. But as some screenshots I'll post show, he stole and sent passwords. So that was still a crime. And before he admitted to it, he went to popular sites posting that there's a new update for CTX and people should go and download it. He can say that there was no malicious activity all he wants, but at the end of the day, this was black hat hacking and not research in my opinion. He just got caught and tried to walk it back, I think. I've got one last one for you today, and it's the biggest in scope. And we're gonna walk through it from start to finish as the attacker did. So let's flash back to 2013, when a Lithuanian citizen by the name of Evaldas Remesoskis decided that he was going to attempt one of the largest cases of business email compromise to date. See, 
He saw the billions of dollars companies like Facebook and Google were making, and he and a couple of co-conspirators decided that they wanted to try and sneak a little bit out for themselves. The first thing they did? Figure out what vendors have a lot of dealings with major companies that rake in those big bucks. What they landed on was Quanta, a Taiwanese company that deals in computer technology for firms. So he goes to Latvia, where he can register Quanta as a legitimate business entity and creates a nearly identical business. In doing so, he also opened and operated corporate accounts out of Latvia, Cyprus, Slovakia, Lithuania, Hungary, and Hong Kong. Once that foundation of a con was complete and the bones of a fake company were settled, the phishing started. This was widespread, and I'm singling out Facebook and Google here, but the emails went to many, many different companies. And it worked well because in some of the companies Quanta had dealings with, this was met with normal due process. The group would create fake email threads to add levels of validity to their claims and end up sending fake invoices, false contracts, and anything that could be used to get money their way. Some of these included fake documents with forgeries of employees and even executive signatures. They really went above and beyond the normal level of phishing for this and provided a whole backstory. And since everything here was technically coming from Quanta, just not the Quanta they thought, it all looked entirely legitimate and would be forwarded up the chain in Google or Facebook. All in all, do you want to guess how much money Ramasaskis and crew made out with? Over 100 million dollars. That's how much was sent their way over all these different fake invoices and documents and contracts. According to the Justice Department write-up on this case, those funds were nearly instantly laundered and moved to different accounts. Eventually, though, this would be traced back to him because in 2017, Rimasaskis was arrested by Lithuanian authorities and ended up being extradited to New York in August of that year. He would plead guilty to one count of wire fraud, and that carries a maximum sentence of 30 years. Now, I have to imagine that he had some good, juicy information, because what did he end up having to do? Five years and a forfeiture of $49.7 million, a little under half of that money that was stolen. And I wonder if that's just however much money was left and was able to be found, or what, because it seems like he's getting off pretty light in my book. I don't know what the accurate punishment should have been, but it definitely feels like it should have been heavier than that. So when you think about social engineering, I want you to think about it now as a little bit more than just that random scam email that you get. I want you to picture the thought and the effort that goes in behind it. And I want you to picture that these hackers might not stop until they get access to you. And you might not even know what's happening. That's all I've got for you for stories about this. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for listening to me explain what the shell social engineering is and tell you about some of my favorite examples of it. It's everywhere, though, so take a look around you, and you'll find some crazy stories yourself if you want. Oh, I do actually have one other thing for you for today's episode, and for next week's episode. It's a little bit of a bonus episode, actually. Next week, I'm going to be at DEF CON, so firstly, if you're there, say hi. I'll be wearing my What the Shell shirt and giving out stickers to anyone that'll take one. But secondly, and more importantly, I thought what better way to celebrate than with some bonus content. Specifically, an interview with Red Teamer and Twitch streamer Al Hazred. I reached out to Al a while back because I tune into his streams pretty frequently and he agreed to come on the show. And he's actually going to tell one specific social engineering story that I think is crazy. It's how he got into Moderna pre-COVID vaccine during a red team test. I'm super excited to have had that opportunity to talk to him. So be on the lookout for that. 
you're getting three weeks straight of content. So I hope you enjoy it. And lastly, as always, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at shell underscore pod or join my Discord by clicking the link on whatmichellepod.com. That's all I've got for you this week. I'll see you next week with the interview with Al.